sometimes in order to combat corruption, you have to take an indirect approach and not a direct approach, not the big bang approach. You achieve a reduction in corruption by trying to do something else. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. You just heard the voice of Doron Navot. He's a postdoctoral researcher on political science at the University of Haifa and an expert on corruption in Israel. This interview was conducted by our colleague and friend Ina Kube. She is also a postdoc, but from the University of Tel Aviv and also an expert on corruption in Israel. Thanks a lot, Ina, for helping us out. We wanted to conduct the interview on the recent developments in Israel for a long time now, I guess for a couple of months. And finally, we had a date set up, so we wanted to conduct this interview in person originally. Unfortunately, the coronavirus now also crossed our plans. And as Doron was in France recently, he is not allowed to go out of the house at the moment. So we had to record a telephone interview this time. Unfortunately, this has some effect on the sound quality, so apologies for that up front. The interview is focused almost entirely on the political situation and corruption in Israel, putting some focus on uh, the corruption cases against Benjamin Netanyahu. The interview also deals with the Israel-Palestinian conflict and the role of corruption within it. And at the end of the interview, Doran gives some reading advices for corruption scholars. Let's jump in over to Ina. So, hi, Doran Navort. Hi. Doron is there working at the university in, uh, in Haifa. Um, he has a PhD and Doron did already a lot of research um, about corruption. And I think we met for the first time like three years ago. Something like that. Something like that, yeah. And then we started uh, also to work on an article together. So we were researching on the link between corruption and basically populism in Israel. But we will talk about this. A bit later, uh, actually, Doron and I were supposed to meet today in person in Tel Aviv, but uh, Doron is not allowed to leave the house. Am I right? That's right. Yeah, you were in France, and now the government. Yeah, instruction yeah. and orders because of the health condition and Corona, etc. But I think we will That's also it. manage on the phone. Uh, Doron, could you give us some background information about yourself and also? How and why did you start the research about corruption, uh, mainly in Israel? Okay, I started the, the research 20 years ago, and uh, actually it was exactly 20 years ago, in a think tank, civil, in Israeli civil society. And it was uh, popular at the time to, to study corruption, and uh, somehow nobody did it in Israel. And uh, so a professor asked me whether I'd like to join him uh, Uh, for uh, initial study, and uh, I said yes. I didn't know anything about corruption, but it uh, it sounds fine. And uh, I fell in love in the subject and the issue, and then uh, I found out that nobody in Israel uh, actually uh, study political corruption. 
So I became someone who's uh, sort of a local expert or the only the only academic uh, person that uh, study corruption. Uh, I finished my PhD 12 years ago. It was about the concept of political corruption. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, for two decades now, I still uh, think, study, explore the subject of uh, corruption, corruption in public life, political corruption, all the aspects of political corruption, including the question, uh, what uh, what is the meaning of corruption? What, uh, what is uh, important about uh, corruption? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the most important forms of abuse of power? All these things, are, I find them uh, interesting and fascinating and uh, this is what I do most of the time. And of course, we're really curious about this to hear more about it in uh, in more detail. But before we really start, could you could you explain us uh, a bit more, or could you describe the corruption cases that uh, uh, Netanyahu, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, or they call him here Bibi, is involved? Because I think for outsiders or people who don't live in Israel and who just read the news, it sounds a bit like, um, yeah, in Israel we would say a balagan, like a mess. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe, could, could you give us some more information about these cases? I can try at least. And uh, as, as a start, I would say that it, it's not clear and it's definitely not agreed in Israel whether or not uh, Netanyahu is uh, really engaged in corruption. Is uh, It's beyond dispute that there is about that there are three charges against him, criminal charges. This is not something that anyone can deny. It's a fact. But uh, people in Israel disagree about the basic question, whether or not he actually violated the law and uh, whether or not he uh, abused power for private gain. So this is a, a general uh, comment. And now about the, the affairs, there are actually three affairs that are supposed to to be examined in, in the court. One case is about cigars and uh, champagne that uh, Netanyahu uh, got. This mm-hmm. is case 1000 and is uh, prosecuted as a breach of trust. This is uh, allegedly a classic case of corruption. He denies uh, that, that the gifts are corrupt because he said he, he got it from a good friend. So mm-hmm. this is a, the first case. Yeah. The mm-hmm. second case is a dialogue between Netanyahu and a, a prominent publisher in Israel, in which they were uh, dealing a sort of a quid pro quo. The publisher offered Netanyahu uh, friendly coverage. And uh, in return, he asked Netanyahu to, to help him with his uh, business, his media business, to, to legislate something that would uh, help the publisher with his business. This is the second case. Case 2000, and uh, also the charge is a breach of trust. And uh, the third case is uh, also Netanyahu allegedly got positive coverage from uh, Walla, digital platform named Walla, and in return he gave favorable regulation for the owner of the, the media platform. So these are three cases. The Israeli public uh, disagrees almost about everything. There is a total disagreement in Israel about the details, about their meaning, about the role of Netanyahu. Anyhow, I, I want to emphasize that 
Israeli public is not uh, united or actually splits about corruption. What does it mean they are not united? I mean, we have to say that the Israeli society is really, really diverse. And um, some people prefer or they mainly talk about the lefties and the righties. In Israel, although, although their uh, society is so, so diverse, so which, which side believes Netanyahu and which side uh, actually is yeah, maybe even convinced that he's uh, involved in these corruption cases? Yeah, the hawkish, rightist, uh, nationalist people, populists, believe that he's innocent or, or, or if he did something wrong, it's uh, meaningless. And uh, they blame the media and they blame police and uh, they blame attorney general and they blame the legal enforcement system. And, and, and on the other hand, you have the, the center and the dovish or, or leftist that uh, conceive Netanyahu as a, as a sort of a devil, as a cruel and, and corrupt despot mm-hmm. uh, that is going to destroy Israeli democracy. So uh, the opinions about him are, are diverse and, and completely in disagreement. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the moment... The issue of uh, anti-corruption and corruption is highly politicized. By both sides. Yeah. It's not uh, something that you can talk about in natural terms, natural terms, or, 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 or uh, you know, as uh, beyond the dispute or say something uh, which is not with political consequences and meanings and, uh, and uh, you, you can't talk uh, outside any, you know, position. The, the issue is very, very political. And interestingly, the three elections were not about corruption at all because it, it, because there is a common wisdom that uh, you can't win him by, charge, by claiming that he's corrupt and you have to do something else. So corruption was not a, a, a very meaningful issue but, in the elections. But what were the, the, these elections about? I think it's also very interesting for, for our audience. There were now the third election. In, uh, one year, and yep. we still don't know if we have even another round of elections, although people really try to avoid that. But could you also explain us what happened, why why did the people have to go to actually free elections within such a short period of time? I think basically we, 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 we can give several explanations, but, but I think that it's obvious that the disagreements are, are really profound and deep. And uh, you don't have a majority either for the pro-Netanyahu camp or the against Netanyahu. And, and Netanyahu symbolizes a form of sovereignty or a form of uh, relation between state and society and politicians. And he symbolizes the will of the demos or direct democracy or, or what we call populism. Yeah, these are exactly they're the characteristics of, of populism. Yeah. If we define populism as uh, us versus them or elite and the uh, and the people, so we have here uh, something a, a version of it that uh, this is uh, direct democracy and uh, represent and uh, re- representatives uh, represent the sovereign or the supreme court, the media and other institutions as well. So it seems that almost half of the the population in Israel are in favor of Netanyahu's version of democracy. 
and half of it are in favor of sort of liberal democracy, you know, more conservative democracy, more the, the type that we, we had for for the last half century. And uh, Netanyahu is, is the the leader of, of populism, of the Israeli populism, populist movement. And he's extremely talented, extremely talented. So it's not only that he symbolizes something, he also really, people understand that without him, the populist camp will lose his power. So his camp is behind him. It's not like Donald Trump. So, so in, in terms of you know of, of, of a sort of Western democracy, he's a extremely important figure. And but so, is, is there yeah. something new? This wave of also populism in Israel, or was it yeah. always within the country? Or within no, the no, it's, it's something new because we had a we had a semi-populist leader Menachem Begin, but he wasn't really a populist if you compare him to to Netanyahu because Begin he adopted the partly the, the um, populist rhetoric, but Begin was uh, a supporter of uh, the Supreme Court and strains about uh, legislation, and, and so very different from Netanyahu. Netanyahu is something new, and in fact, Netanyahu become more and more radical during the last uh, five years. He was he was uh, more uh, realistic liberal, less less radical. So, so it, it became something really really important in Israel. The, the Israeli population can't decide. You don't have a majority for either uh, either way. So maybe we'll go to another round. I don't know. What do you think? What will the citizens think about this? Do you think they will actually go to the For the elections, because the last during the last uh, election, the voter turnout was quite high. I think one of the the highest voter turnouts in the history of the country, or since I think in the 90s. But although there was the fear of Corona, uh, people really went to the elections. But do you think this will be the same when there would be the fourth election? I don't know, and I think most of us guess that uh, there won't be elections very soon. Okay. It's not that this is the most reasonable outcome, you know, another elections in three months or so. But having said that, it's really hard to see what what is going to be because the anti-BB camp, the what they call the liberal democracy camp, or you know, the more conservative one, they also in in a serious disagreement because they don't have majority without without the representatives of the Arabic population. And many of them are too racist or too conservative to cooperate with Arabic parties. So really, it's sort of a deadlock or, or stalemate, or I don't know how to call it. Something really, really strange is going on here. And uh, we're in the middle of it. <laughs> and we have to say that the, the, the Arab party or parties were really successful during the last election, which also, they, which is something yeah. new. Yeah. And the joint list, uh, the Arab population is it's, it, they, they reach to its best uh, achievement. That, by the way, today they they have to decide or they 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 want to decide whether or not to support Gantz against Netanyahu, and they also in disagreement uh, among themselves. Some of them want to to support Gantz. Some of them want to stay and not to support anyone. And which will place corruption uh, within the the Arab party? Do they how, I mean, how how do they perceive the the corruption allegations or corruption cases of Netanyahu? Basically, basically, and I think it's the only natural corruption in in that sense is even less interesting for the Arabic pop citizens. Yeah, 
it, it, it is as if something that uh, happened to someone else because the, the, their, their major problem is not the corruption of Netanyahu, but the discrimination and racism. Mm-hmm. And, and this is not the same as corruption as, that, that, that we mean, you know, abuse of powerful private gain. They are more concerned about discrimination, violence, and, and nationalistic and populistic laws. Right. So, mm-hmm. so his corruption, you know, it's something that they can talk about, but only to attack him. But it's not; it doesn't have power, political power in, among uh, Arabic citizens. But uh, what is more attractive is to talk about their influence, their potential influence. So the slogan is: "We we can we can make a difference. Yes, we can. We we have power, and but not corruption." But. Let us go back to the fact that there are a lot of Israelis who don't believe that Bibi is actually corrupt. How, how would you explain that? I mean, there's evidence. There will be a trial, but still people don't really think that Benjamin Netanyahu is a, is a corrupt person. I, I think that as scholars, we sometimes tend to forget That can interpret. We have many interpretations for uh, for evidence and facts. Tend somehow to believe that the case is obvious and it's obvious that he's corrupt. But today I don't think so. I don't think that it is uh, such a clear cut case. And although I believe that Netanyahu is corrupt, I don't think that it's so obvious. Mm-hmm. And I I can see how people that don't trust the media. And don't trust the bodies that uh, mediate the information and, uh, you know, uh, give interpretation for information. If you don't trust these bodies, then uh, from this to, to disbelieve that he's corrupt, uh, the road is very, very short. I think that this is a classic example of uh, post-truth or post-fact politics. Condition yeah. that uh, we all suffer from, but I don't blame the public for that. I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really problematic condition, but you can't solve it just by saying that he's corrupt. And this is also a phenomenon that we we, we also see this in, in a lot of European countries and in a lot of countries around the world that citizens or ordinary people don't trust the media and state institutions anymore. And and ironically, or and, and sadly, they have they also have good reasons not to trust the media. It's not that the media is an uh, impartial uh, mediator. It's a political actor with the uh, agenda. And today people understand it, something that maybe they didn't understand a decade or two decades or three decades ago. So you don't trust political actors. You don't ask, you don't trust uh, journalists. You, you, you happen to realize that they cooperate with specific politicians and they promote specific agenda. Why should you trust them? So, and, and another thing, Because Netanyahu is such a powerful uh, politician, he succeeded to change the Israeli media. He, uh, in the last decade or so, he put uh, more and more journalists and editors and uh, digital platforms that uh, cover his uh, his activity and, and, and government more favorably. And there are more and more uh, mainstream uh, journalists that are in favor of Netanyahu. So You get very confusing coverage. How come you, you, you be so sure that he's corrupt? You can't. 
Yeah, right. I mean, and we live in time and the time of fake news and misleading information. So people are just not sure anymore what, what they can believe, what's true That's and what's right. not true. How can, how can they believe? How can they know who, who to trust and who not to trust if everything is so political? What can we as scholars or as academics or researchers, what can we do about that? That people start to trust institutions and start to trust the media again. What 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 can we do? Did we did we do a mistake in the past, or what what do you think? First of all, I'm interested to to ask the question: Can people trust us? You're talking now as if the academy is out of a political context and no power relations in the academy, standing the point of view of nowhere. So and it's not the case. So I think that the first thing that we should explore and examine is ourselves and ask ourselves: Do we we really do our job faithfully, and uh, what are our interests in the, in the in the political arena? And only after that, and after we explore our role and our power relations, etc., we can uh, continue and uh, explore whether there are institutions that dwarf trust, public trust, and then and try to explain to the public. But I don't see in the academy self-awareness or, or honesty about uh, our role and our position in the political context. And, and as long as we don't do it, and as long as we we talk as if we, we are beyond that, I don't think that we can make a difference. That's a good point. But for me, it was also very interesting uh, when I moved to, to Israel like four years ago, and corruption always played a role in Israel. So there were always corrupt uh, politicians. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, Israel has a history of corruption. But there are only a few researchers that are that are really focusing on the analysis of corruption in Israel. It's you. It's uh, also Edna Harald Fischer from the Democracy Institute in Jerusalem. So I, I felt quite alone, so, but I'm really happy that I met you now so that we can work on it together. I mean, you have your Israeli perspective, I have my European-German perspective, but why are there not so many researchers in Israel uh, who focus on corruption in their studies? Basically, Israeli academy is provincial. It's, it's for similar reasons that you don't have a research in Hebrew. <laughs> Israeli academy don't accept publica Israeli publications and publications in Hebrew. And, and to write about corruption in Israel in a foreign language is something that is not that interesting. So unless you have something extremely important to tell the world about corruption in Israel, there's no reason to make a study about corruption in Israel. So the incentives are not to write about corruption in Israel and in general not to write about Israel. It is related to the previous point about the political context. The Israeli academy is... Uh, Something, I mean, it's not an important uh, player. If, if we talk about populism, you don't have populist sentiments uh, that are related to the academy because the academy or the universities in Israel are not a player. And so, uh, among other things, there's very few research about corruption in Israel. So this is an important point. And uh, as we all know, it's difficult to make scientific study about corruption because the facts and, and all the things are... are illegitimate and, and the agents hide the meaning of the activities. So we know it's, it's difficult to write 
meaningful research about the subject. And uh, if you take it together, and for other reasons, you have very, very few research about corruption in Israel. When we talk about informal practices, uh, there is one specific informal practice, which is called kombina in, in mm -hmm. Israel. So how would you see the relationship between corruption and kombina? Kombina is basically favoritism. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, it, it can be favoritism. Combina is, it's like combination. It's to combine. And it's to combine interests and then to combine uh, opportunities. At times, Combina is a euphemism for uh, corruption. And at times, Combina is something uh, which is less severe than corruption. But obviously, when you have a culture or, or, or a norm of Combina, Then you have uh, it's illegalism, or, or sort of you know when 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 favoritism is the norm, cultivate corruption definitely. And I think that uh, you can say that in Israel there are a lot of areas that combina is a factor to to yeah get yeah, for but, example but, documents or to to get things yes. quicker. That's right, but I think I think that the, the, the phenomena is not prevalent at all the places in Israel, and it's not legitimate, uh, you know, in every area. And and I think that uh, you have uh, less less favoritism uh, with compared to the past. I Israeli society is becoming uh, more and more uh, legalistic. Uh, society has become more and more legalistic and formalistic. I think in the thirty forty years. Yeah, so Kombina is uh, similar to Basta, or in Germany it's called uh, vitamin B, vitamin uh, relationships, called blood in Russia. So we find yeah. Kombina in, in, in every society. And as you said, Israel is a very, very informal society. And uh, as a foreigner, when you're coming abroad or you move in into this country, you have to learn these rules. Otherwise, you won't survive. You need to learn also how the informal ways work and also like yeah, it's not it's not always the official way you, you choose here. But people wouldn't wouldn't see this as a corruption. It's just a way of life or part of I, the culture. I, 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 let, let me try to explain why they don't see it as corruption. Because you can have a, a an informal process which is entirely unprofessional and uh, in which uh, any merit is irrelevant. And you can have informal process in which you do use your connections, but they will take you until certain point. And from then on, if you're not, you don't have talent, you don't have the qualities, it won't be enough. And I think the condition in Israel is that, that many, com many what we call combinas are in this, the, the second kind, in, which means that You need connections, but they are not enough, which so, make it less less corrupt. So would you say in the end it's still about qualifications? Yeah. Okay. In many cases, but you can't you can't succeed if you don't have connections. Connections are necessary but insufficient conditions for success, which make it less corrupt uh, with compared to societies in which connection is all you need. That's uh, actually a good uh, a good statement and gives some hope. <laughs> 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 but but definitely definitely it means that the process is uh, not transparent, not transparent and to a certain amount not fair. 
because uh, people without connections can't uh, compete. So you don't have transparency, it's uh, unfair, but it's not the worst thing in the world. And this is, this is how things are today in many, many places in Israel. And you just mentioned there are Arab minority in Israel who doesn't have the same rights in, in a lot of areas who are often discriminated. And if they then don't have their, the Kombina or Vasta or however you will call it, Uh, in a specific situation, they are, yeah, at a disadvantage. Absolutely. But they have uh, the opportunity to succeed in, uh, you know, uh, favorite discrimination, however how we call it. And there are more and more areas that are that supposed to promote uh, Arab citizens. And then you have different kind of, uh, you know, uh, favoritism. Mm-hmm. But it's among uh, Arabs, and it's related to the paper that I wrote with uh, Muhammad Khalayla about Hamulo, mm-hmm. you know, which is a different kind of, it's a more uh, nepotism or, or familial uh, connection. So we talked about uh, BB, we talked about political corruption, uh, or we could also call it greed corruption, so really high-level, top-level corruption. And there is also need corruption, how Monika Bauer, uh, for example, would call it. It's a question if we would consider combina or favoritism as, as uh, need corruption here, because you really need combina to, to get something. But we cannot really say that, ha- that we have both types of, of corruption in Israel. Right? Do we have more, would you say, more Greed corruption or more need corruption, like high-level corruption uh, or pity corruption? Because I, I have never seen here corruption on the street. You don't bribe the police officer. You don't bribe the doctor. You don't bribe uh, people in specific institutions to get documents. I mean, I'm not aware of that. I'm sure people did that, but it's not uh, systematic. I, I agree. I think that street-level bureaucrats in Israel are basically not corrupt. And not engaging in corruption, they don't accept receive bribery, and uh, what we call need corruption or petty corruption is not common in Israel, at least not that we know about it. But how would uh, you? How, sorry, how would you explain it? Because people see corrupt politicians, people working at the top of the country, but why is there no street level corruption? I think that because there is a difference between politicians and 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 state, and the state is is basically strong. And the state is basically not corrupt. And the institutions are basically not corrupt. It's one of the reasons that uh, Netanyahu is under investigation and is uh, free charges against him. If uh, the state was also corrupt and not only Israeli politicians, then there won't be investigation. Take, for example, the uh, United States, which I think is much more corrupt state or government than the Israeli government. Mm-hmm. There you have corrupt politicians and corrupt corrupt uh, government. In Israel, the state, the institutions are not corrupt. Street-level bureaucrats are, uh, in this sense, they are part of the state, not part of the political arena. So I think that the interesting things about Israel is that uh, the state is relatively clean, uh, clean of corruption. And one of the things that the elections were about is exactly this point. I mean, Netanyahu opponents actually want to preserve this kind of state, and Netanyahu and his uh, supporters want to change Israeli state. They see the 
cleanness of the data, something uh, political, as something that promotes a liberal agenda, as something uh, not democratic. This is why uh, the elections were and are so important. It's about uh, the future of the Israeli state. And I'm sure there will also be some reforms now, no? the political system of institutions. and It depends about what is going to happen. We are, we're still in the middle of almost political war. And, and we don't know what will going on. I mean, it, it all depends about uh, the, the character of the next government. That will shape the, the face and the, 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 the character of Israeli state. People still associate with Israel, or when they, when they hear the word, or when they hear about the country Israel, they associate, of course, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and still a lot of people think, like, it's a war zone here, and uh, luckily a lot of people come to Israel to see that's not the case, and that it's uh, very nice to uh, go on vacation here, for example. Uh, do you see any link between the conflict, the Israeli or Arab-Israeli um, conflict, and corruption here in the region? Yeah, I think that uh, because of the conflict, there are more important things than uh, political norms. I mean, it's maybe impossible to stabilize and to to determine uh, political norms in a in a condition of, of such a conflict. I think that, uh, first of all, you have to resolve the conflict. Uh, it is a moral priority and a political priority to resolve the conflict. And, and, and if you have to decide about resolving the conflict and, uh, and uh, anti-corruption norms, I think that uh, resolving the conflict is the uh, first priority. So if you have to, to take a, a corrupt politician that will resolve the conflict, I think the moral thing to do is to, to take him and to promote a resolution for the conflict. And under this condition, I think uh, that the horizon of, of anti-corruption is, is limited. And so the, the agent of anti-corruption in Israel is the state. And it uh, promotes anti-corruption policies not because uh, it is uh, bothered about norms or anything like that, but because it's part of the, 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 the state's power. Being a powerful state is being a state that is uh, more immune uh, or is, is, have less uh, corruption. This is it. It's not that the people uh, support anti-corruption policies. Take, for example, the coalition against Netanyahu. One of the pillars of the coalition is, is a politician called uh, Victor Lieberman. And he's very famous also because of his engagement in corruption. And he's one of the pillars of the anti-Bibi camp, which means that it's not about corruption for or against. It's about Bibi for or against and about uh, the Israeli state for or against. So thinking about people. And uh, about the conflict, the conflict is much more interesting and uh, are much more important and other things, but not corruption. And I think that the conflict, in another sense, make corruption less important because politicians abuse the conflict in order to, to talk about other things other than corruption. It's not only that the conflict is more important, it's also that the, disc that the discourse is exploited for the conflict. Yeah. So... For these two reasons, I think that issue of corruption is less meaningful. I don't think that you can say that the conflict or the occupation is responsible, for example, for the corruption of Netanyahu, mm -hmm. for grand corruption. You could expect that it would corrupt the uh, street-level bureaucrats, which is not. So you can't, you can't find the link. I don't find the link at the moment for, uh, between the occupation, I mean the occupation and the conflict, 
and corruption. I do find that an indirect link between the conflict and the, the agenda, the Israeli agenda, and the place of corruption in the Israeli agenda. Yeah, and I mean, we can also call it, uh, in the literature, it's called the trade-off hypothesis. When we're thinking about uh, the re-election of potentially corrupt uh, politicians, so people here always do this cost-benefit analysis. And I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu provides security and protection, and this is, uh, of course, more important than not to be involved in some corrupt yeah. allegations. Yeah, and he, and he provides uh, other benefits. And uh, as I said, uh, many people don't think that he's corrupt. It's not that they think that he's corrupt and they say, okay, but he provides security. Mm -hmm. He provides all these things and they think that he's not corrupt. Take, for example, his engagement with wars. He's, not, he's Mr. Security, but he's not, uh, but he also a prime minister that accepted the rockets from Gaza. And people don't punish him for that. His case is not uh, a simple trade-off. I think that today... Almost half of the people or, or large amount of people in Israel really, really support him and think that he's great. They don't do a trade-off. They simply admire him. Okay, we, uh, we have to come to an end, uh, but still we have a few minutes. Doron, what do you think, what can we learn from Israel related to anti-corruption? So what is really working in Israel? And also what shouldn't we definitely not learn from Israel? So what doesn't work related to anti-corruption, anti-corruption reform strategies, prevention of corruption? I think what I find interesting in the Israeli case is that the anti-corruption is a state project mm -hmm. and not a civil society project and not a people's project. And I think that you can see the pros and cons of such a condition. I mean, when anti-corruption is a state project, you, you can fight corruption and you can find corruption even quite effectively. But it, it's not clear that it, this is a sustainable and stable condition, because if the state is the major uh, agent of anti-corruption, which is the case in Israel, then uh, it will lose legitimation. And uh, then you will have uh, the sort of condition that Israel is facing today, in which half of the people are against the state. So I think that we can learn the limits and the advantages of anti-corruption projects led by state, by a strong state. In a democracy. Uh, in a democracy, in a liberal, a sort of a liberal or ethnic liberal democracy, which, uh, which show you that uh, you can do good or, or a lot mm -hmm. with the state tools without the public support. Having said that, it has its limits. And in these days, we will uh, learn I think very soon what the limits are. Yeah, and Israel is still a very young country. It's a very young democracy. So it's still, I mean, it's not an apology, but it's still like in the, in the learning process. Yes, but I, I don't think that the, the age of Israel is a, is a serious factor here. I don't, I don't see how things would be different if it was uh, older or younger. It is as if we don't need to take... Maybe I don't see it, but I, I really, 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 I think that many things that, that the Israeli state and the Israeli society deal with are common to other countries. The United States is, is, is older. It's not that old, but it's older. And uh, We see what's going on, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they are all overlapping their problems. And the fact that Israel is a strong state, maybe you think that it is because it's young. Okay, maybe. 
But uh, I think that the interesting thing is that uh, the relations between state, society, and, and, and politicians, maybe this is the most important or mo- most interesting thing in Israel, is it allow you to, to distinguish more clearly between politicians, state, and society, which is, which, which is, I think, something that we tend to overlook in the literature about anti-corruption. And what should we learn from Israel? should learn or not learn not learn we should not learn <laughs> not learn <laughs> no we shouldn't we should not learn how to <laughs> occupy people and we should not learn how to discriminate citizens and serious mm-hmm. this is something that Israel have to to resolve and I, and I hope that the results of the last elections will uh, to a progress in this condition but this is this is the, the of course the worst thing in Israel is is, is the discrimination not uh, not really about corruption but it is It's such an issue that I can't not mention it. And the very last question, what are your must-reads in the corruption literature? What, what can you recommend? Um, I, I, I really, really, really recommend about a volume from 1997 of political studies that was edited by Paul Haywood, which is also a book about political corruption, uh, problems and perspectives. And I think it's the Paul Haywood the paper and the paper of Mark Philp. You have, you have their excellent, excellent, really excellent papers. Mm-hmm. I think they are a must read. And I think that uh, also Michael Johnson uh, published uh, things that I think are, are extremely interesting. And, and, and one of the things that I like in his, in his uh, papers is the insight that sometimes in order to combat corruption, you have to take an indirect approach and not the direct approach, not the big bang approach or, or, or something direct. You, you achieve a reduction in corruption but try, by trying to do something else. I think it's very profound insight. And this deep democratization approach, like really yeah. deep yeah. in the society, yeah? not yeah. only oh, superficial, oh. short term. That's right. And, and, and basically... When you're not putting corruption uh, in front of you, but other issues, then you will get rid of corruption. Mm-hmm. I think that this is, this is an ironic lesson or something which is not comfortable for us as people that, uh, you know, study corruption to tell, well, let's not, uh, let's not tackle corruption directly. It's, uh, let's, let's stop doing what we do. Not exactly, but uh, I think this is a very, very important insight. Doron, thank you so, so much. This was thank really you. interesting. Really. Thanks really. for your time. Doron, have a nice day. Yom Tov. Bye-bye. And we talk soon. Bye. Litraot. Litraot. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about the topic, I can highly recommend an in-house publication of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network. Our colleagues Ina Kubbe, who conducted the interview, and Aisha Varej published an edited volume on corruption and informal practices in the Middle East and North Africa. There's a chapter on Israel that was written by Ina and Doran together. Two other things that I would like to mention is first, Ina mentions the distinction between greed corruption and need corruption in the interview and referenced the work of Monika Bauer. We already conducted an interview with her in an earlier episode, so please check that out. 
And in the end of the interview, Doron highly praises the work of Paul Hayward. Luckily, also with him, we conducted an interview already. So there's a little bit of cross-referencing here to spread the word of Kickback. So please check out that as well. Before we end, I would like to take the chance to thank our Patreons for supporting us. You really help us moving this project forward, so thanks a lot. Another great way to support us, and I may sound like a broken record here, is to write a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps others to find the show. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Matthew Stevenson, Niels Köbes, Jonathan Kleinpass and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time.